it's interesting to me how often this is true. Uh, excuse me one moment. And this particular week, we're dealing with the reality of forgetting something that you know is true. As we're talking about uh, this story in Luke chapter 7, that's your cue to be able to take your Bibles out because we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7 and you want to hear what God says, not what I say. So in Luke chapter 7, chapter 7 we've seen um, Jesus in this dynamic of healing the centurion's servant and then uh, performing a healing miracle that wasn't even asked for. He encounters a woman uh, a widow who is grieving over the loss of her only son in the middle of the funeral, and they're carrying him through the street on the on the uh, the funeral bier as they carry the the coffin out, this open style coffin, and and Jesus has compassion on her and raises her son from the dead, and we see these incredible things that he's doing, and then Luke transitions into another separate but related story that could throw some of us for a loop. In fact, it has for, for many centuries caused folks to uh, have to wrestle with their theology. Thank you, Gabriel. Um, and in this story, we see a man of great faith who knows more than you and I know. He's been a, a firsthand witness uh, to what God has done. John the Baptist. We're familiar with him. In fact, Luke starts out uh, as he begins his story in the early chapters. Before he even talks about Jesus, he talks about John, the forerunner. He was prophesied from the Old Testament times that there would be this forerunner who would go before Christ. By the way, I should have mentioned earlier, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we want you to have one. We've got a stack of them on the front table out there. So if you need one, just put your hand up and Michael will make sure that you've got one. We need one in the back row over here, Michael. and uh, Take a look around, another one back there. Uh, you want to be able to, to have God's Word in your hand. And if you don't have a copy of your own that you have at home, that's easy for you to use, that you can uh, underline and mark up and write in and wear out, then please, by all means, take one of ours. That's what they're for. And if you wear it out, come get another one. Because we want you to wear it out. God wants you to wear it out. He wants you to put His Word to work in your life. So uh, back to John, uh, Luke chapter 7. John has been foretold from of old that he would go before the Messiah. He was, this was prophesied even while he's in the womb when Mary, pregnant with Jesus, comes to John's mother, Elizabeth, a relative of Mary's, who's about six months farther along, her presence there with Christ in her womb causes John, the forerunner of the Messiah, to leap in her, in her belly. She's like, what is going on? How is it that I'm being visited by the mother of my Lord? Now, Elizabeth is an old woman, being visited by a young relative, and she's blown away that she's honored because the mother of the Lord has come. There's no scenario where John doesn't know exactly who Jesus is every day of his life. To add to that, 
When Jesus reveals himself, he comes to John, who is really well known in the area. He's baptizing people for repentance. John's baptism isn't like our baptism today. It is in that it's water immersion. But John's purpose was to take Jewish people, the people of God, who are going their way instead of God's way, not to, not to bring them into Judaism, but to bring them in line with God's will and God's heart. Stop doing your thing. Stop, start doing God's thing. And that baptism was an indicator, an identifier with that. While he's doing that, Jesus comes, and John's like, whoa, 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 <laughs> dude, you're the Lord. Uh, this isn't right. And Jesus says, it's right for now. This is the fulfillment of all righteousness. So Jesus, in being baptized, is identified also, not with turning from his sin, he doesn't have any, but he's identified with choosing to live for God, 100%, all in, all the time. It's a beautiful moment. And in that moment, while John, cousin of Jesus, is baptizing him, he's immersing his relative in the water, God, the Heavenly Father, speaks audibly, opens heaven, and says, you're my son. In you I am well pleased. John hears this. He's in the middle of it. Can you imagine? And now we've had some pretty awesome baptism services, amen? We've had some great worship together. We've had some powerful moments that have moved us spiritually and emotionally. But I've never heard God speak audibly in one of our services. John's here, and the Father, the creator of the universe, says, yes, my son. And the Holy Spirit, spirit, not visible, manifests himself in a visible form like a dove. I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's actually, you know, in the movies they might portray it actually being a dove. I, who knows? I wasn't there. What I do know is that Scripture makes it clear the Holy Spirit in this moment becomes visible. We see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all together at the same time and John's right here, right with them in the water. But things take a turn. And by the time we get to John 7, or Luke 7, John, these disciples keep throwing me off, uh, by the time we get to Luke 7, John, the prophet, the baptizer, is now imprisoned. Herod's locked him up. He's going to eventually be beheaded. Most of you know that story. Not yet. That's coming. But all of a sudden, things seem different to him. You know, John in prison, for sure, was not anticipating what's going on now. It's interesting to me how often we think we know what God's got planned. And then life takes a, takes a turn. And that expectation that we had turns out to be anything but. For some of us, that shatters our faith. I have some conclusions about that that hopefully you'll be able to see as we develop this today. There are some things that I know for sure and some things that I 
think. What I know for sure is what the scripture says. The stuff that I think in my own opinion, eh, take it for what it's worth. Just another guy. But as we go through this, John, John, the prophet, the forerunner of Christ, has what you might call sort of a crisis of faith. Let's read the text. We're going to start with John, or with, I keep doing it, with Luke 7, verse 18. And we'll read from there. Remember that this comes on the heels of Jesus healing the centurion's son. doesn't even go to the person that he's healing. He just wills it and it happens. And then he goes and he performs a miracle and, and raises this dead man from the dead because he can because he commands all reality. And right after that we hear this. John's disciples told him about all these things. Let that sink in before we go farther. John's in prison. His disciples seem to have access to him, so they're coming and going. And they're like, John, you're not going to believe what Jesus did. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask and, and, and i got to tell you, this should, be, this should be underlined in your Bible. This should be underlined in your heart. I, I would put you know, a question mark, an, an exclamation point, something, because this is huge. This is a surprise. He sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to, to ask you, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, evil spirits, gave sight to many who were blind. So as these messengers are there, it appears that during, not, not just in the general vicinity, we've been talking about that, they've already reported this to John, but while they're there, while they're asking this question, Jesus seems to be in the process of doing what he's constantly in the process of doing, giving life to the lifeless, giving hope to the hopeless. And he's presenting the good news of the kingdom, and people's lives are literally being changed before their very eyes as they're watching. At that very time, verse 22, so he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John Go back and report to John, note this, what you have seen and heard. Go tell John what you yourselves have seen and heard. Be a witness to this. Here it is. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. This seems to be the climax of the story. There's this crescendo here as we come through it, and John's like, I don't even know, What's, are you really the Messiah? We'll talk about that in a few moments. And Jesus says, check it out. Look at the evidence. Here's my calling card. 
You tell John, don't, don't tell him I said so. Just tell him what you've seen. After John's messengers left, there's a continued crescendo. I thought that was the climax, but it's not. It continues, and Jesus makes a really strong point as the climax begins to resolve. Notice in verse 24, after John's messengers left, left Jesus began to speak to the crowd. Notice the preposition. I would circle it. To the crowd about John. John's not there. Messengers aren't there. He's talking to those who are there with him. Believers and non-believers alike, those who are gathered in the crowd, he says, here, let me tell you something about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? No, if not, then, then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? A person of luxury? A celebrity? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, he's more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. I'm pausing for effect here because I want you to really hear it. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one, say no one, no, no one greater than John. Yet, flipping it again, another surprise twist in the story, nobody in the world has ever been greater than John, yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. If you have an NIV, the next portion is in parentheses. That's not in the original, but it fits. This is a connector piece that connects this story to the next one that we'll see next week. So we see that all the people in verse 29, even the tax collectors, in other words, even those avowed sinners, people that have no connection with trying to even live uh, for, for the Lord, not even interested, absolutely uh, rejected by society, the, the, the dregs, if you will, everybody at this point, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. If you have an older translation, it might say justified God. They see that God's justice is good and right, that what God says is true because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for, them, for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. We'll develop that a little bit more next week. But as we're looking at this, we're seeing John ask a question that's born out of confusion. Born out of uncertainty and anxiety. He had expectations that didn't go the way he thought. And now uh, he's not quite sure what to think. Here's something that we're going to see it throughout the entire story and throughout the message today. This is our core reality. Anxiety happens. Truth overcomes it. Say it with me. Anxiety happens. Truth overcomes it. It's not an accident. It's not a, a, a coinkydink, as Alan Thicke would say. It is absolutely God-ordained that this week, from, from last Sunday to this, 
I have had multiple people, the majority of phone calls, the majority of texts, the majority of conversations that I've had in walking through life together with folks have centered on anxiety. I couldn't make this stuff up if I tried. I didn't know that was what was going to happen. I'm just preaching through this, and God brings it together. And as we're going through this, we as a people deal with fear and worry and doubt and anxiety all the time. We can deny it, but we do. We may not deal with it well, but we do deal with it. All of us have places, gaps in our understanding. And when we have those gaps, it creates some turmoil in our lives. You may not call it understand, uh, anxiety. You may call it something else. Stress. Concern. It sounds better if we say concern, right? Worry. But all of these things come from a gap in our understanding that creates an uneasiness. John is going through that same thing. John had introduced Jesus as the one who would bring judgment and fire that would burn up all of the chaff of the world. He sees the one that he knows is the Messiah. He's always known, and he's, not only has he always known, but he has studied the scriptures to make sure he knows the prophecies. He's raised in a priest's home, so he's got access to everything to know this stuff. The word of God is always before him. His, his zeal, his passion for the word of God has caused him to live in the wilderness, to clothe himself himself in an unusual uh, camel's hair garment. So people look at him like, that's a weird dude, man. He's out there in that camel hair living in the desert. With this fantastic, not so popular fad diet of locusts and honey. I'm assuming you're dipping the locusts in the honey because the locusts can't be very flavorful, right? You get some protein in there, but you got to get the honey to amp it up a little bit. So he's out here doing these things as a prophet of God because he's that passionate for God's word. He's not trying to fit in. He is specifically called to stand out. John is not a weak man. He is not a doubter. He is not a, you know, somebody who's just back and forth with public opinion. And yet, the one that he introduced as bringing fire and judgment is not even in Jerusalem, the city of the king. He's in Galilee. He's, he's out here with the folks in, in farm country, if you will. Flyover country, you might say. And he's healing and he's preaching good news. I thought he was supposed to be preaching judgment. Furthermore, John has gone from bad to worse. He was voluntarily in the wilderness, but now he's been imprisoned. Whether or not John knows what his fate is, and I suspect that he does, he's going to be beheaded. There's no getting out of this for John. Now maybe he thought he was going to see Jesus usher in the kingdom in a visible way. Most Israelites, most Jews, did believe that. They believed that the Messiah would come and usher in this physical, visible kingdom. Little, little spoiler alert, he will. That's still coming. So hold on to your hats. But 
John probably has an anticipation not too dissimilar to that. He's probably expecting that Jesus, the one who's going to bring fire and brimstone and judgment and wipe out the wickedness and purge the earth and clean up all of the mess, fix all the broken things, that can only happen through justice. It can't happen through a bunch of feel-good, soft stuff. It has to come with fire and sword to take out the evil. That's the only way evil goes. And when, when the judge comes, wait a minute not wielding a gavel. He's offering a gentle hand. I'm confused. And now I'm in prison and I, I really don't get what's going on here. John sends this question and, and many theologians and Bible commentators have um, I suspect out of our discomfort, in fact I've seen some specifically say it in a way that, that makes it very clear it's our discomfort. We have a very difficult time thinking that somebody like John could lose faith, right? John? What kind of a holy man is that if you have doubts? Uh, I find this to be a very poignant and, and particularly important thing, so I want to make sure that I say this clearly. This stands out to me as I read it. Largely because so many of you, so many here in this room right now, who love Jesus Christ with all their heart and have found themselves rooted in God's word, sometimes wrestle with even wondering, can I even be saved? Am I even really a believer? Because I've had so many doubts. If I really believed, if I really trusted God, would I still have to battle this worry? Would I still have these fears? Would I still have this anxiety? I don't know what's happening right now. My life seems to be falling apart. Where is God? I'm questioning all of his choices. If God's doing these things and he could stop it, is God cruel? Is God a terrible God? How dare I think such things? If I'm thinking these things, I must be a terrible person. I can't be a Christian. These are questions that I've actually heard from you here. If not from you personally, it might be the person sitting next to you. But these aren't questions I'm making up. These are questions that we wrestle through together. I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's an accident that God has brought those conversations to pass this week. Some even this morning. The Lord has a message for each one of us in His Word. Every word of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for our building up, our instruction, our correction and discipline and rebuke. All of the things that we need in our lives to get life right, we find in the Word of God. John has a question. We'll see as we go through this that Jesus has an answer. His response may not be what is expected, but his response, as you would expect from the God himself, is always right. But beyond his response, Jesus has a defense, a defense for John, not for himself, but he, he defends John's question to the crowd. And then he makes a very important and particular declaration. Let's walk through this together. Let's look at John's question. It comes from anxiety. John is feeling anxious. He has doubts, but maybe not doubts the way we think of them. One of the struggles that I think we have uh, epistemologically 
That was easy for me to say. I needed more coffee this morning. As we're dealing with the concept of knowledge itself, we tend to uh, put meaning on words that we transfer whether or not that meaning applies in a particular context. So we have to be very careful when we use words in general to make sure that we're actually talking about what we think we're talking about. So when we talk about doubts, there are doubts and then there are doubts. And not all doubts are the same doubts. You follow? Savvy? So as we're doing this, John is having some doubts, hence the question. He's having some anxiety, some confusion. He's not quite seeing how things are coming together. It doesn't mean that he doubts the word of God. Not at all. He's doubting perhaps his understanding of it. Did I get this right? Did I miss something? Because Jesus, I thought that this, is there somebody else? It's not that, that John is questioning Christ. Notice what he does with, the, with this anxiety. He goes directly to the source, doesn't he? He's not going to sit and stew about it. Boy, we tend to do that, don't we? We feel anxious, we feel stressed, we feel worried, and we wring our hands and, and we, oh, what about this? What if? Well, you know, what if? we got a lot of what ifs. John's like, wait a minute. I, I can't let my mind spin anymore. I'm going to find out. Go ask him. Just go ask him. This is a big deal. In Mark 9, 24, Jesus is encountering a man who wants him to, to heal his son. And he makes the comment, Lord, if you're willing or if you're able to do this, you know, you can heal my son. Jesus is like, if? What are you talking about? If you believe, anything's possible. And the man says, in what I think is one of the most profound and useful prayers in all of Scripture, I would encourage you to dig deep into this. He says, Lord, I believe, I absolutely believe Please help me deal with my doubts. Help me overcome my unbelief. Or as it always rings through in my head from the King James, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. John is in that same situation. I believe, but God, I'm confused. I don't understand this. It's not that I don't trust you, but I don't see how this can be what I thought it was. I don't see how you can be who I, I thought you were if things aren't coming together the way I expected them to. That's one of the gaps we run into in our understanding is our expectations are not the same as what God's expectations are. Psalm 103, it's a great psalm. I'd encourage you to look it up. Not right now for the sake of time. I'll just mention it to you. But in Psalm 103, we're told that the Lord has compassion on those who love him. He knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a hugely comforting thing for me to recognize that God, the one who made me, has not forgotten what I'm made of. He made Adam from the dust of the earth, and I'm from Adam. I'm from that same dust. I am weak-willed and failing. I'm frail and so prone to wander, and God knows that about you and me. He knows that we struggle. He knows that sometimes we fall. He knows that even though we trust Him, sometimes our trust can be weaker than others. What a powerful encouragement to know that the God who made me knows me and has compassion on me in my weakness. 
He knows that we're dust. Again, John doesn't waste time with this. I don't know how long he's been wrestling with this anxiety, but at, at whatever point, whether it's been going on for weeks now as he's been in prison and he keeps hearing more and more stories about what Jesus is doing, and it's great that people are getting good news, but uh, Lord, you could get me out of this prison cell, right? I'm still here. I'm still in the middle of my junk. And maybe you feel imprisoned in the middle of your junk right now. God, if you love me, if you really care about me the way you said the way I say with my mouth that I believe you do. Why am I still in this? You could deliver me right now. You could make this all go away, but you're not. I don't know what to make of that, God. And we have anxious thoughts. We have struggles. Understand this. Anxiety occurs when our minds... Our flesh, anxiety occurs when our minds encounter uncertainty. Anxiety occurs when our minds encounter uncertainty. We have gaps in our knowledge. We know things, but we don't know completely. That's the fate of all human beings, and it always will be. We will never know completely until we are in heaven seeing God face to face. And even then, I don't quite know if I understand what completely means. Does that mean completely for us? Because I, I don't think my mind is going to still be capable of comprehending God. If there are things that angels don't know, then I don't think I'm going to know. So even completely in that scale is beyond my comprehension. So today, in my situation, I think I know things, but I don't know much. There are a lot of gaps. I know you. I know what I see you do and what I hear you say. But I can't judge the motivation of your heart. So there's a gap in my knowledge. I know what happened yesterday, not as well as I think I do, but I know what has already happened. And I know what I'm in the middle of right now, not as well as I think I do, but I do have a knowledge of it. But I have no idea what's coming tomorrow, and yet I constantly am predicting in my own mind and heart what is going to happen, what should happen, what I absolutely know, right? Don't, don't we always know? I know you're going to do this. Because you always do this. I know you're going to do this. I know this is going to go wrong. I know I'm not going to be able to meet my bills this month. I know this marriage is going to end in divorce. I know my child is doing something wrong right now. I know there's no hope. But we don't know. We have information, knowledge gaps. And those gaps tend by our flesh to get filled in with negative. When your child breaks their curfew and they... Uh, you know, they're an hour past when they're supposed to be getting home. Nobody ever thinks, how wonderful that they're missing curfew. I know they're doing something wonderful right now. And God is really being blessed by them. They're probably sitting down with somebody and sharing the gospel. And, and, and you know, maybe they just had an epiphany while they were driving. And they pulled off the road because they wouldn't do this while they were driving. And they sat down and they jotted down this, this vision that they had for the cure for cancer. Nobody thinks that when your kid misses curfew. We think either they're doing something nefarious and wicked or something nefarious and wicked has happened to them. Because our minds naturally fill in the gaps negatively. 
It creates anxiety. When we don't know the outcome, when we have uncertainty about the future, anxiety is the natural result. Therefore, we need to change how we think about it. If anxiety is the natural result of uncertainty, stop looking at your anxiety as some fatal flaw and sinful behavior. It's not about anxiety. It's about what you do with that anxiety. You're going to have anxiety. Everybody just, just tell yourself. Say, I'm going to have anxiety. Okay, if you didn't say it, then you're hurting yourself. Okay, you need to hear yourself say it. You need to feel yourself say it. I'm going to have anxiety. Say it. And it doesn't matter. What matters is what you do with it. Will you hang on to it? Will you sit and stew about it? Will you wring your hands? Or will you take it to the foot of the cross? Will you go to the source? That's what John does. And he goes and he sends him to, to Jesus. And in his anxiety, his question brings about an answer. It leads to Jesus' response. Notice what happens. Jesus doesn't give an intellectual argument. He doesn't say, well, John, come on, man. You should know better. You've seen all this. He doesn't rebuke him. And I find that very interesting because it would be very easy for the God of creation in the flesh who has never sinned, who never wavers, to say, John, come on, man. You know better. You were there. How could you doubt me? He doesn't do that. So just give John the evidence. You know why? Because we need reminders. John knew he needed a reminder. And you and I need that too. It's interesting that God created us for relationships. And I think part of the reason for that, this is the I think part, but I think I can make a pretty good case for it biblically, is because you and I need each other to remind us of what we already know. We need each other to come around and say, hey, don't forget. Man, you know this. I'm going to walk with you through it until your heart remembers what your mind already knows. Jesus does that with John. Notice, he, he, he gives him evidence. He says, just tell John what you see. Sick or healed, lame walk, blind see, and the gospel. The good news is preached to the poor, to those who are outsiders and oppressed. Constant theme in Luke, by the way. As Jesus is saying this, that's all the message he gives them. Notice they don't balk about it, right? They're, they got it, all right? They don't know as much as John knows. They're following John. And yet, because they saw, and Jesus says, just, just tell him. Just tell him what you saw. All right, let's go. Let's go tell John, because you know he's the Messiah. And John's going to know it too. The moment he hears that word, yep, thank you, Lord, that's all I needed. I just needed to remember what I already knew. I needed to set aside my expectations. Notice that Jesus doesn't ask him to believe blindly. Isaiah 1.18, the Lord says to his people Israel, as he's calling them to repentance, Look, turn from your sin. And if you'll turn from your sin, I'm going to make your, your scarlet-stained sin as white as snow. I'm going to take it all away. Everything that you have ever done, if you'll just turn to me and trust me, it's all going to be gone. 
And he, he kind of centers it on this idea. Come. Let's reason together. Let's reason together. You know, when God calls his people Israel, they're taking that from the name that he gave to Jacob. Jacob meant deceiver or one who grasps the heel. Israel means one who struggles or wrestles with God. God wants us to wrestle with him, to wrestle with truth. He never calls us to blind faith. He gives us a reason to believe. He gives us evidence. Last week we mentioned Hebrews 11.1. 1. Take a look sometime at the chapter of Hebrews 11. It starts out with this statement about faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we don't see. It's the evidence of things unseen. I'm trusting what I know to be true, even though I don't see it right now, I still know that it's there. How many of you are breathing air right now? Raise your hand if you're breathing air. How many of you can see the air? Did you just lie to me? Did you lie to me by saying you're breathing air? Of course you didn't. You know that there's air there. Air there? Yeah, that was good. Um, but you can't see it. There are a lot of things we can't see. I can't see gravity, and yet I know it's real. I can't see the wind. As Billy Graham said, I can see the effects of the wind, but I can't see the wind. Faith is knowing that it's real, even when it doesn't feel real in the moment. Even when it doesn't seem real. Jesus gives this response, and he, he, he just points out, here's what the Messiah is going to do. Tell John what you're seeing. Do they match up? If they match up, then trust God. Evidence and reminders. Note this. Anxiety is removed when gaps are filled. Anxiety is removed when gaps are filled. John had a gap in his knowledge, a gap in his understanding. He expected certain things from Messiah. It wasn't happening the way he expected. And that uncertainty caused anxiety in him. He asks the question, he takes it to the source, and Jesus fills in the gaps for him. He says, here's what you're lacking in your understanding. Just want to remind you, John, you know the prophecies. You got your expectations off track a little bit. You started thinking according to your agenda, not according to mine. Here's what the Messiah will do. Boom, 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 boom. You're seeing these things done. Boom, 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 boom. There's your answer. The gap is filled and anxiety is removed. Here's the thing. Anxiety happens. Truth overcomes it. Anxiety happens, right? That's our core reality. Anxiety happens. Truth overcomes it. Don't freak out that you are anxious at times. The freaking out is what gives it roots and allows it to live. You cut those things off by filling in the gaps with the truth of God's Word. That's how we overcome anxiety. John's anxious question leads to the answer that Jesus gives through this evidence. But he goes on to defend John with this assessment. Notice what he says, that among those born of women, there's no one greater than, than John. And he goes so far as to, to just bring their minds to it. Look, you know, I think as the crowd is hearing the messengers ask this question, they're probably thinking what you and I would think. John is asking this? What, what happened to his faith? Has John fallen away? Has he stumbled in his faith and he doesn't believe anymore? Oh, John, John, John. 
if John had as much faith as I have, you know, he'd be better off. And Jesus says, hey, did, did you go follow John? Did you check him out in the wilderness? Did you go all the way out there to see some dude who had no spine? Come on, you know better. John's been out here living on the front edge, doing what you didn't do. Calling people to repentance. Calling down politicians. Saying, listen, you're living in corruption. You've got to stop. Stop sinning. Turn from your way. Turn to God's way. Not popular, right? But you didn't go to John because he was weak. You didn't go to John because he gave a hoot what you thought. You didn't go to John because he was a luxurious, well-dressed celebrity living in the lap of luxury. Those guys are in palaces. No, you went to see a prophet who could deliver the word of God. So don't you dare think that because John had a moment when he had some confusion, some uncertainty, and it, and it led to anxiety, that John is somehow failing or flawed. And I want to say to you, as the accuser points his finger in your face and says, you with your doubts, you're failing God. You say, devil, you're a liar. There's no one greater than John, and he had these doubts. This is what happens as we live in this world. We have partial knowledge, we have anxiety, we're dust, deal with it. Truth overcomes that. Note this, anxiety, <clears throat> excuse me, anxiety reflects a moment, not a person. Anxiety reflects a moment, not a person. Yes, you have anxiety. It does not define you. Stop letting it. It takes over when you give it the power to define you. When you begin to think of yourself in terms of your fears and doubts. And Jesus says, look, stop looking at John that way. John is still John. Nothing has changed. No one has ever been greater. Not Moses, not Elijah. No one has ever been greater because John is here as the prophet who sees more than anybody else ever got to see before. It's a powerful, powerful thing. John is the greatest among men and his doubt did not make him weak. It's not grounds for disappointment or criticism and it's not grounds for disappointment or criticism in yourself. Don't stay there. Don't wallow in it. But don't let it take you down because you think in your mind you must not be very spiritual. You must not be a Christian. You must be disappointing God. Not so. It's a reflection of your moment, the knowledge gaps that you have. It's not a reflection of who you are. This defense of John... Jesus, it culminates in Jesus' assertion, his declaration about those who are in the kingdom. His statement about those who are in the kingdom being greater than John is the development of a seed that's been planted. So he's moving toward this point. Here, here's how I come to this idea in this passage. Because I, I want you to understand how we get here. It's not just that I have some special knowledge. I don't. I'm just looking at it. And as we break this down, we take a look at the question and the, and the answer. The whole point of this passage seems to hinge on Jesus explaining this. Right? So he defends John, which is pretty easy for us to see. And we can tell, okay, he's saying that John's doubts here are not defining him. They're not shipwrecking his faith. 
Therefore, it does not seem, according to this context, as we read the conversation, it doesn't seem like John's just using this as a rhetorical question, as many have said. No, it's, John's not asking for himself. He has no doubts. He's asking so the disciples' strength will be, uh, faith will be strengthened. Mm, no. I'm not buying it. Because if that's the case, then why is Jesus defending him? Why is Jesus making this point? And he makes this point and goes into this development of a seed thought that has been there. John's greater than anybody else because he's seen more. He's, he's here on the precipice of the kingdom. He's introduced the Messiah to the world. He's prepared the hearts. He's plowed the ground. And yet, when you're in the kingdom, those who receive the kingdom, who received Christ and become the children of God, they're even greater than John. The very least among you. Because while John saw this in shadowy form, you and I have the opportunity to receive it. Not to see the kingdom. John's there. He can see it in the distance. He can see the gates there. You and I get to be in it. We get to be part of it. John 1.12, after pointing out that Jesus is the Word, He's the eternal Word of God. He was there at creation. Everything created by Jesus. He is very God of very God. And yet He came to those who were His own, and they rejected Him. But to as many as receive him, John 1.12 says, to those who will receive him as who he is, taking him on his own terms, to them he gives the right to be children of God. John's a servant of God. He's a prophet of God. He's the mouthpiece of God. But if you're the least in the kingdom, the very newborn baby you just today decided, you know what, I'm going to give everything to Jesus. I'm all in i got nothing else to hold on to. It's just Jesus or I die. Automatically, you're greater than John the Baptist. Write this down. Anxiety is insignificant compared to our inheritance. Anxiety is insignificant compared to our inheritance. That's what he wants us to get. Yeah, John, John's got it all. He's the forerunner. He's the, the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. But you actually receive as inheritance what John spoke of. What John pointed to is your life. He sees Christ, but the cross hasn't happened yet. You and I have the opportunity to be under the blood of Christ. John and all the Old Testament saints are still looking forward to it. They have faith in what is yet to happen. We get to participate in what already has. Anxiety is insignificant compared to our inheritance. The key to dealing with anxiety and doubt is a firm grasp on the reality of God. It's a firm grasp on the reality of God. I mentioned Hebrews 11, and, and after that initial verse, it goes through a listing of Old Testament saints and talks about how they believed what they did not see. They believed based on what they had seen before. They trusted God based on what, the, what they had seen God already do, but they received a promise, and they held on to that promise even though they did not get to see it in their lifetime. They knew it was true. And it pointed toward Christ 
the serpent crusher who would come. You and I have received the fullness of that. My prayer for us today is that we would have eyes to see what God is doing in us. Have eyes to see that the one who knew no sin became sin for you and me so that we could become the righteousness of God. All of your burdens on Him. All of your worries and anxieties and doubts on Him. All of your shortcomings and sin and rebellion and wickedness on Him. Jesus paid it all. He became sin who knew no sin that you and I might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to have you turn to one passage as we wrap this up. It's Ephesians chapter 1. If you're still in Luke, turn to the right a little bit. It's right after, it's right between Philippians and Colossians. Uh, No, yeah. Philippians is between Ephesians and Colossians. Sorry, I got confused. In case you ever feel bad about getting lost trying to get around the books of the Bible, I do it too. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 16, Paul writes this, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Note this. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that He might open the eyes of your heart, so to speak, so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. That's us. That's not some dude that has a statue of them. That's us. All of us who have been called according to His purpose, who have been set apart for God, we are His holy ones, His saints. Not because of anything good in us, but according to His mercy He saved us. That you might know, that you might have the hope to which He has called you the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet, and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Your anxiety is nothing compared to the inheritance that you have in Christ. As His church, we just read, we are the fullness of God on this earth. We have nothing on our own. But as He fills us, We're a reflection of Him. We are here to reflect His love through our relationships. So that through seeing us, people can see God in Christ. My prayer today is that each one of us, just like John, despite 
confusing uncertainty that leaves us anxious would be able to be rooted in truth, surrendered to God, and completely, completely filled with the hope that is in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for including this passage in Scripture. We often ask in, in these messages why it matters. and It's such a powerful, powerful thing for us to be able to see that even John the Baptist could have moments of confusion and anxiety, so there's no reason for us to feel guilty about that. But Lord, thank you also for showing us that we have no reason to hold on to it, that your truth overcomes our fears. Your truth can stabilize the uncertainty in the storms of our lives. Help us in our daily walk to be changed by knowing the reality that allows us to overcome anxiety. Lord, thank you for showing us the nature of it, the nature of this anxiety that plagues us. So often we've defined it away in secular ways and, and we, we lose meaning that way and it causes us to stress over our stress. Lord, help us. Help us who are in Christ, who know for sure that we have been saved, to rest assured that our salvation and your favor don't hinge on our weakness or strength. And Father, I pray for those here, for those hearing my voice today, who don't have that assurance. They haven't found themselves on their knees before the cross. They haven't found themselves surrendered to you. Lord, I pray now, in this moment, that you would stir their hearts, that you would move in them, that they might see wonderful, glorious things from your word, and that they would turn over the reins of their lives to you and receive Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray these things in the name of the only one who saves us, your precious Son, who became sin on our behalf, that we might become your righteousness. Pray this in his name.